This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for today's interview with Dave Harris, a writing coach who helps authors develop writing practices using principles from design methods. His book, Literature Review and Research Design, A Guide to Effective Research Practice, was published by Routledge in 2020. The tricky thing about helping students become researchers is this, how to get them to stop thinking as we've trained them to think for all of their schooling and university, and then how to get them to start thinking as they'll need to when they begin researching in earnest, or when they move out of academia and begin applying their expertise to real-world problems. This transition from the stop thinking that way to the start thinking this way, without changing really the subject matter that they're thinking about, this transition is, to say the least, a really downright difficult one. It begins in steps, one of which will be for sure understanding and practicing research design. Here is Dave Harris in his own words about research design. Research literature, the public face of research, so to speak, presents the final conclusion of a research project. It shows a set of motivating questions, methods, results, and conclusions drawn from the results. It shows what a project looks like when it's finished. It doesn't necessarily show you how the project moved from inception to completion or the difficulties that the authors faced. And it will rarely focus attention on issues that other scholars might consider fatal intellectual flaws. Authors show belief in their own work, and don't spend their time talking about all the potential arguments against their work. The literature reveals many important things, but it does not reveal the difficulties of research design. For the independent researcher, designing a good project is the necessary preliminary to completing a project, and it is very difficult. Designing a research project requires you to be able to handle the theoretical complexities in your field, certainly, but it also includes other considerations of no small significance. For example, your choice of topic will influence not only the professors with whom you work while in school, but also the shape of your future career. 
Your choice of theoretical foundation and method will also influence the people you work with and who supports or rejects your work. These social and political dimensions of research have significant practical impact. Choices of topic, theory, and method also shape the resources you need to carry out your research. Some data will cost a lot more in time and money to generate than others. Few or none of these choices have clear answers. They often involve trade-offs. For example, what is the project that most interests you? And what does it mean working with a difficult professor or choosing a more difficult career path? So that is David Harris in his book, Literature Review and Research Design. So let's begin the conversation with Dave Harris about his book. Dave, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, happy to be here. Um, the method of research design is a good thing to have, right? Uh, whatever it might be, there's all kinds of methods out there and different disciplines. But your book says that might be good, but better is to also have practice in that research design, um, to not just be entirely reliant on on the method. And, and, and the quote that I just took there kind of gives us a, a flavor of what it is that you're talking about in the book. Could you maybe begin by giving us that contrast between method and practice? Well, method is, uh, the way I think about it, is it's a systematic, organized plan of action. And methods are very important and, and necessary in research, but the choice of a question, the choice of what research question is outside the scope of method because you can't plan it. Um, a practice, by contrast to a method, is more about day-to-day -day activities. It's about uh, moving into a uh, a space and having different choices available to you. So sometimes I compare practice to gardening. I don't necessarily know what I'm going to work on in my garden when I step out to it, but I can see the different things that need to be done. And the important thing is that I get out there every day and do it. Uh, so practice is much less structured around certain plans as it is around being active and regularly active. And I think that's important because one of the dimensions that we want to work on is the physiological dimension. Um, the way we think about things, our understanding, all are based on our physiology. And the more we focus on one set of ideas, the more our brain builds up or our neurological physiological system builds up those systems. So uh, method, I feel is limited and prescribed and useful in cases, but it doesn't serve on a long-term basis for making bigger, more important choices, which require personal values and whatnot. This is really fascinating because it, it, it seems more and more that you're noticing in academia, when I think, for instance, of a movement of the science of science, I just also interviewed um, a book on that topic, actually the same title as well. You're noticing more and more an analysis of all the numbers that can be turned out of what it is that academics do and hopefully trying to find some sort of a pattern that can give us a key to things. And 
what I found so refreshing about what you've just said there, also, of course, this gardening metaphor, but when I read your book as well, is that there is also almost, if you like, the human element, the practice element, the engagement element, which, I don't know, it's going to remain unmeasurable, isn't it? I think so. Um, Some things are beyond measurement or... You know, I think a lot about the philosophy of science, and and when you say it's not measurable, I, I think of um, Thomas Kuhn, Kuhn comparing different scientific paradigms, which are uh, he uses the word incommensurable. Uh, they can't be measured on each other's terms, and that's on a certain level one of the problems that every scholar faces is that choosing one scholarly paradigm. Is often sets you completely outside others, and that choice in itself is, you know, the the, the differences are incommensurable, as Kuhn says. So, um, how do we step outside a purely logic based structure to one that is, you know, uh, history or knowledge is socially or historically constructed, and those systems just aren't really, they don't work together, and you have to choose one and. How do you choose them? You don't have a method for that. And these are the things that you, as the saying goes, don't learn at school, aren't they? (laughs) Because, or please, yeah. Well, uh, they are the things, because they're the things that people take for granted. Uh, If you believe that the world is round and you've been taught that the world is round your whole life, you just take that for granted and you teach that when you're teaching that and your students pick that up as a premise that you don't question. Um, And all these premises that we don't question are crucial to what our ultimate research will be. And you shake one of those little premises and suddenly you're in a different, very different mindset. Um, So yeah, it is something that we have to learn and it's not something that people, I think, consciously teach because we're all embedded within our own mindset. We all have our own view of what science is or research is, and that's limited by our experience and our knowledge and our past teachers. But of course, other people have probably looked at it differently. I mean, what what you're referring to now reminds me in the book of the fact versus fiction contrast that you make uh, as as being one of the sort of central motivations for what it is that you're doing when you're researching. You're, of course, trying to uncover the fictions and demonstrate or present the facts. You very, you very clearly, though, show that, yeah, that sounds wonderful, but <laughs> how exactly do you do it? And what you're saying right now seems to speak to just that. So uh, maybe, maybe I could follow that up with it. It is, uh, to a degree, researching in a in a productive way, in an effective way, means knowing the measures of validity in your research community, a, a topic that you take up at, at great length. Who is your research community? These are sometimes, in some cases, called also warrants for the claims that you make. So on what basis, through what sort of logic are you claiming one or the other? Right. Um, it is... That is sort of one of the fundamental questions. And and for a lot of people, that's just taken for granted. You've been in this context where you've been studying, say, chemistry. And so you learn, you know, that these are models or whatever. But 
you take that for granted and you don't say, well, we could, we could have looked at this in an entirely different way. And I, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a Humean. I, I very influenced by the philosophy of David Hume and, and what Hume, one of Hume's big, big things is sort of this gap between knowledge and belief and knowledge to Hume is generally out of reach, but it's what we can prove. It's what we can know with certainty and, Belief is what it's what we I mean, it's what we believe. It's this feeling almost. It's our experience has led us to this place. And because our experience has led us to here, we have this strong understanding that things work this way. And fact and fiction are one of these beliefs that we have because the world around us gives us so much information that leads us to this, right? We're little kids and, you know, we steal a cookie from the cookie jar and then our parents ask us, did you take the cookie? And we say no. And well, we know that's a lie and they know that's a lie because there was that cookie and, and we ate it, you know? Um, so we ha- we grow up with this fact fiction distinction and it becomes a belief and when we analyze it, we lose some of the clarity that we have as a child working with these things. And yet, despite losing that clarity during the process of analysis, we retain a certain intellectual, uh, emotional level of, of clarity or certainty. So you have scholars, all the postmodern scholars who say, well, truth is only, you know, historically or socially constructed. And they lay out what their truth is in their book. And their argument is all based on, and you should look at things this way, not the other way. You know, I mean, I'm generalizing, obviously, but it's always this fascinating paradox to me how you can assert, well, all knowledge is socially constructed and then go ahead and say, you know, all knowledge is socially constructed and there's no other understanding. It seems to me we need this emotional, non-logical element to drive us through that. And one of the quotes in your book that I I took out for myself and uh, following this up, I think, is going to lead us even further down and uh, down this path that we're we're heading with what is fact and what is fiction? How does it pertain to research? And then obviously, practically, how does it pertain to putting together your research in some sort of design? Um, One of those quotes that I, I noted was, you say, aiming at the wrong target is never a good way to achieve success. Thank you for that sentence. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) And you go on, though. Um, You talk there about the idealized views that students will typically have of scholars. And I would like to maybe unpack what is meant by that. You I'll continue. I'll end the quote, though. And then you say methods don't have all the answers. Facts don't speak for themselves. And scholars work in communities. So essentially, with your quote there, you're debunking some of this idealized view. But maybe we could get behind um, some of what you've just been saying on a, a far more abstract level with Hume. What is it that the student is facing when he or she then realizes or is being helped to realize, as in a book with yours, that it's not all quite what they thought it was. Yeah, I think that, uh, and this is a large part of my book, I think that a lot of it has to come with um, a a willingness to embrace uncertainty and also embrace your own ideas despite that uncertainty. Um, When we are coming through school, when we're 
Uh, and this is changing, I want to say, with uh, pedagogies of active learning, which involve more questioning. But traditionally, historically, coming through school, we are given the information by the teacher. Uh, the answers are right or wrong, according to the teacher. Um, and of course, many answers are sort of right or wrong. The Declaration of Independence was, you know, 1776 or uh, two plus two is four or any of those sort of clear demarcation points. Um, but we get in there and we are moving into this space where we have to make choices and we think, okay, the scholar proves things. And we think the scholar is working alone in the ivory tower. And we think that the scholar has, you know, all the answers except for the question that they're researching to some extent. And these are sort of the picture of science that we get, um, a scholar finding answers by brilliance and method, um, experimental method, systematic method. And what we really have as scholars is this much more interactive and personal level. Um, method is still crucial to move beyond just our intuition for stuff. It helps us create a social foundation by which we can convince others that we have done work in a responsible way, that we have tried to answer all the weaknesses of our work. But analytically and logically speaking, there are always gaps in our work. There are always limits to our work. And when we have this sort of naive view of what scholarship is and the level of knowledge that we, we need to proceed, we say, well, I don't know enough to say this, I better read more. Or we say, I don't know enough to use this method yet, I better check and see if there's another method where real scholars ultimately reach a point where they say, you know, this is the method I'm gonna use because it's what I know, or this is the method I'm gonna use because it seems and they go ahead and they dive in and they don't get stuck on these questions that any reasonably critical person could ask. So, so it, this com go ahead. Yeah, this com this comfort with with insecurity and also uncertainty. I mean, uncertainty makes insecure is is key to to what's going on and I, and I and I find that that great the way that you put it that you you've got this method on the one hand and what you have on the other hand you, you call it practice you could call it also a sort of enthusiasm which certainly comes out in the book when you talk about voice um if if i might just one quick example that always really fascinated me when i spoke with people who were uh, scientists so i'm thinking natural sciences um again and again the people who are really quite successful at what they do always point back to the literature and this 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 is something that's making more sense the more I uh, as I read your book and the more I, I speak to you today because that is one of the practices the reading and and you spend certainly a fair amount of time in the book uh, showing how to read and it just was one of those things where uh, for instance a recent guest John Meesey who I had on uh, talked to me in the biological sciences talked to me about how he um, he, he finds that. During his uh, studies, that was one of his favorite things to do. And he finds that it was the effort that was never wasted. There was never a time where he was reading the literature where he felt like he wasn't getting something out of it. And 
And for a scientist, you know, who's used to the wet lab work, not to point to that or the species or the numbers, but to the reading was for me definitely an eye opener. Yeah, you know, I, I think you you mentioned enthusiasm and I, I feel like that's a, that's the dimension when you have the enthusiasm for your work, um, reading isn't overwhelming. It's, uh, an excitement, but this enthusiasm, uh, I think combined with a sense of, of self-confidence is crucial because you read so differently when you have that enthusiasm and self-confidence rather than if you have doubt and a sense of, well, I have to do this because the person with enthusiasm and the sense of their own purpose and their own center reads saying, how does this inform me? How does this change my way of looking at things? Whereas the person who's reading with less internal direction and less confidence says, maybe I should rearrange my whole way of thinking. And it's a balance point. Of course, we want as scholars to be open to new ideas and to be able to learn. But if we're too open to new ideas, we just read one article and we're like, wow, that's a great idea. I'm going to go on. And then you read the next one and we're like, oh, completely different idea. This is a brilliant idea. And then the next one and so on. And you're always just pursuing other people's stuff. And you need that enthusiasm um, to keep moving forward, that sense of your own work. And I think people find that in reading often. Um, and the people who don't find it in reading uh, struggle more. When you're inspired yeah, re- by what you've read, you keep going. Yeah, and I mean, I think it, it's probably worth bringing it up back up now again to a more abstract level and away from the daily reading or writing, which is, of course, another major act of, of the uh, researcher, not just the writing for publication, but to bring it slightly further up on the abstract scale of things back to a Hume kind of level, I, 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 would, I would imagine that um, this enthusiasm is being expressed in that comfort amongst different voices, that level of I'm willing to sit here amongst my area of thought, my subject area, my my knowledge area, whatever you want to call it, and listen to what everyone's having to say. And actually, that's exciting for me. And, and, and I think that is a picture of what's going on in research, which is very different than the idea of finding facts, which you'd referred to earlier, the, the proving, right? The the linear advancement of getting more done and more out there. Um, it's not that that's not happening, but I think this enthusiasm comes by, to bring us back up to that more abstract level, that, that ability to sit yourself there and to listen. And when the time is appropriate for you, to speak. Yes, yes, especially that to speak. This this, this is what you know. my book is largely about, the, the willingness to say, here's, here's what I think I'm going to do. Here's where I'm going to focus. And it is, it does, I think, rely on this enthusiasm and this willingness to be in the conversation and to say, well, I read so-and-so and I'm going to develop a project to expand on that idea. Or so-and-so said this and I want to, you know, I want to correct them um, to be able to say, I have something to add to this conversation and I don't have to have all the answers so that what I add to the conversation might be a question rather than an answer. It's not a fact, but it's a way of looking at things that we still need to test uh, or a way of exploring ideas that 
might give us insight that we haven't had. And that sense of, yeah, I can listen to all your ideas and be open to all these different ways of looking at it and also add something that's, that's new, um, that's mine, that's imperfect, but good enough to share in this conversation. And I know we began by, oh, please I'm, don't I'm let me saying, interrupt. And, and of course, lots of scholars do this. There's this emotional element is so important. Many scholars write about the limitations of their work when they publish, and it doesn't bother them to do that. But for uh, certainly a lot of beginning researchers who are struggling to get their proposal, their dissertation proposal done, uh, the limitations are this huge barrier that they can't write about because they're afraid of being wrong. Yeah, and, and that that's, uh, gives us then a more round view of what you mean by practice because, I mean, practice from the Greek praxis is, is, is doing. So it means that at some point you do get active. Yeah, you just, you just start. And of course, if, if your view of research is that it's about the subject matter, then you'll actually, you'll never start. <laughs> when, when, when would you be done with biology so that you could say something? Um, but if your view of the literature is, is research community, and, and, and that's the idea that I would like to maybe unpack a little bit uh, at the moment, then you, you'll be, you'll be not only motivated, but even feel obligated to start because without conversation, no community. Exactly. Exactly. And that is such a crucial part of this to be, to be part of the conversation and to feel like you are part of the conversation and to feel like you have the right to add something to the conversation, right? Imposter syndrome is something many scholars struggle with, but that's all about feeling that you have the right to to be part of this, to be involved in this dynamic, uncertain, unfinished, ongoing project where we're all looking to do better, even though we still don't have any certain answers. Um, you know, I, I mentioned Popper, uh, Popper's philosophy of falsification in, in the book and how, you know, we, we can prove that, you know, this theory is wrong or that theory is wrong. If we see a black swan, I think is the example in the book, then we know that it's false, that all swans are white. But the the theories that we're working with in Popper's view are the ones that have been best tested, that have shown themselves to be pretty good, but you know we don't know if they're true yet <laughs> because we can't, because that's not available to us. And so we have this we jump in with, yeah, I think that's the best one. I'm going to work on it. And that, that choice, that emotional strength, that confidence to say, here's the one I'm going to work on, even though it's imperfect. It's such a crucial element for the practice. It's also recognizing that that is actually what you're about in research, all the way from literary studies through economics down into chemistry, that, that that's actually what you're about in the research. The um, interview I did with Bradley Alger, he talked at length about Karl Popper and, 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 the, and the hypothesis. And what came out of that um, discussion and his, his wonderful book, The Defense of the Hypothesis, was that it... it uh, of course, abstractly and philosophically, what Karl Popper says is is, is very helpful for practicing scientists. Um, this black swan that appears is going to give us certain knowledge that at least something's wrong, right? 
But the thing is that usually the black swans in quotation marks of any of our different disciplines turn out to be interpretable as well. So that we <laughs> find ourselves in when we're in research activity, actually constantly just reformulating questions. And of course, it's the questions that get better rather mm -hmm. than the answers. Right. Right. And I, in the practice of research, and especially for the student making the transition to being the independent researcher, it's stopping the constant revision of questions to say, here's the one question that I'm going to make a project out of. And if you have been brought up to think, oh, there's the right answer and the wrong answer, and you have these questions, you think, well, I don't have the right answer. I need to keep looking. And so you formulate more questions. If you say instead, this is a conversation where we're exploring a whole range of different questions and nobody's really sure, but you know, we've got some ideas, then you can say, well, okay, I'm going to work on this one question because you know, maybe I'll learn something useful from this one question, even though I know that I won't get all the answers and I know that there are limitations, but still I'll learn something that will give us more better questions to move forward. So this constant revising and regeneration of questions is such a crucial part of being a scholar and being comfortable with that, like being comfortable being in the conversation is, is this crucial step to say, oh yeah, it's all about the questions and what I can learn from them. Yeah, and your your book you you make very clear from the beginning was motivated out of helping academics, uh, particularly students, finish their uh, dissertations, understand what they're doing when they're uh, working on their dissertations, and and I find that when I work uh, I work here in Germany with uh, students writing academic English, and I find when when I speak to them, and this is perhaps something that you can relate to, it certainly speaks to many of the, the topics that come up in your, in your book. When I speak to them about, for example, citation and about how trails of citations are really, in a sense, so many turns in the conversation on that topic. And this, this sort of approach <laughs> picture is something that a fair amount of students will balk at at first. They very much also balk at the concomitant idea that, well, citation counts might have anything to do with the value of a piece of research. And it, isn't it true, in your opinion, that the research is really only as good as the use that it's been put to? And perhaps especially where that use is by other scholars, in other words, in basic research? Because, I mean, what a researcher has cited demonstrates the practical limits of her topic while also stating in no uncertain terms just what that topic is. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I think that there, there's a part of me that really loves the, the idealized view of the scholar working alone in the ivory tower. And I think retaining a little bit of that at, the, at your core as a researcher to say, I have these ideas and this is what it's about. I think that's sort of the heart of the matter, right? I talk in the book about finding your vision and your voice. And I think that that's, that's super important. But to be then going back into conversation with other people, you want to explain how you got to your ideas, right? So that they can use your ideas so that your ideas are not just this insular, separated from the world thing. And 
one of the things that we need to acknowledge in, in this process is that we learned from other people and we learned ideas that came from other people. And to be able to say, well, I, you know, I adhere to a, a Popperian view of science, that not only exp- gives credit to who the author is, but when I'm talking with a knowledgeable person, that gives great insight into what I'm talking about. If I tell you uh, that I'm talking, you know, I take a Popperian view, you know that I'm talking about falsification. You know that I'm talking about that kind of best tested hypothesis situation. And uh, so we're balancing this internal view. If we're talking about citation and how to think of citation, we're, we want to have the meaning that we make out of it. What does it mean to us? How is it? Imp- how do we think it's important? And then be able to translate that into to other people to explain to other people, and using then these scholars as touch points helps others understand how we got to our way of thinking. Uh, so it's a shared experience, if you will. Um, I've read Popper. You've read Popper. We both know that Popper is going to talk about falsification. Um, so I think that that dimension of scholarly work that again in in conversation the students here are talking about who you know you're talking about citation and that's how other people can make meaning of your work and how people can understand how you see the world and there's two topics that uh, you bring up in in this connection details which i see again and again and i'm always mulling over in my mind what exactly do they have for a value for research? And that is the story and the gap. And both of these show up in all the literature when you hear how to research and how to write academic English. Mm-hmm. And the story in research is one of those words that particularly for scientists, uh, again, I mean the natural sciences, STEM, uh, throws them off a little bit because a story is, you know, first off, sounds like literature. <laughs> and second off, uh, logically, it really has involved in it some sort of motivation and some sort of controlling hand behind it, right? I mean, there's a, a novelist puts the story together, right? And it has a conclusion. And of course, that's not a scientist's view of the world, right? That there, there is no motivation behind these things. I, I've often tried to reformulate this idea because there are very many scientists who say that the story still needs to be there because you need you're, you're still even though they're scientists, they're still people and they've got to understand what you're doing. <laughs> um, I've I've often thought, why not another word? Why not something like process? And by process, I mean basically our view of the world through language. Um, there's a, a a strand of, of, of uh, linguistics, which, which I adhere to, uh, systemic functional linguistics, Michael Halliday, if uh, people have perhaps uh, heard. And his idea of process is simply literally our experience of things. And when we look out in the world, there's a million possible analogies and similarities and dissimilarities, right? Just look out any window. And if you step back and take on that that sort of initial view as if you were seeing it for the first time, you wouldn't be able to make sense of anything. And what he says is that it has been that over time we've evolved in each of our cultures, in particular our language, it's being a linguistic philosophy, that we notice change. We see that there's a change somewhere and that's the process. And we usually capture that in a verb. And there in the center of the clause, we find the verb. And 
we don't have really the space here to go into it, but it's 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 a more neutral view because the story says exposition, climax, conclusion. Process says change, and that's it. Right. Well, I think that when we're communicating with people, we're of course bound by the context in which we live, and so uh, one reason that I choose the word story is because it contains elements that I think are very important in the common usage. And I think that there are uh, multiple stories in any research. One is the story of how you arrived at a question and decided on a research project. And that's part of the story that you tell in a research paper. Um, That's sort of the motivation. That's the background that you give. And there's also the story of the world that you're telling. If I'm Um, a psychologist, uh, I'm telling a story about how people think or how certain events might trigger certain uh, sequelae. Um, If I'm a scientist, I'm thinking about how, again, certain events in the world lead to certain outcomes in the world. And so we have these multiple levels of story that I'm trying to get there. And I use the word story guardedly because of course it does have all the it it suggests fabulism right it suggests the creation an author's creation and so you're telling me stories is you know you're making you're making stuff up but but we want to make meaning of our research we don't just want it to be here's a list of facts here's a you know here's a bunch of stuff i observed it's important to be able to make meaning of it if Darwin had just written, oh, and on this island, the birds had thin beaks, and on this island, the birds had fat beaks, and he just left it there, we don't have evolution. Well, actually we do, because lots of other people were working on evolution, and somebody would have come along and suggested something else evolutionary. But be that as it may, part of what makes research research is that we take these disparate elements from the world. We take this gleaning of knowledge from our readings, this evidence that we've gathered in our observations, and we weave it into this story, this narrative about what the processes of the world are, how change occurs, what changes are occurring. And so that's why I chose the word story and choosing a word like process, you know, I could have gotten to the same thing, uh, but I would have wanted to add stuff to shift how we think about process because process too is not commonly used with this sense of meaning making. So when you see the world differently from other people in some even small way, you're still stuck with the words that other people have been using to communicate with them. And whatever language I choose, whether it's English or French or, you know, Swahili, um, I still got to get a word to talk about this narrative structure that a researcher discovers and tries to make meaning of in the process of research. So that's why I chose story, but it certainly could have been process too. The words I choose are imperfect. 
Process comes up somewhere else in the uh, book in a very interesting connection. Um, I suppose I'll sidetrack off of our talk about the gap, which is the next one I wanted to get to. Um, Story is a word also that uh, William Germano, who I've interviewed here on the program, talks about. And he, he kind of very much agrees with what you've just been saying when he talks about just connecting the dots. You always connect the dots, he emphasizes in his most recent book, Revision. And that to me would sound very much like the story that you're talking about. But but to get to the process, because this is also for somebody like me who's very interested in, in writing, um, you talk about research. This, this brings us back to the big topics. You talk about research method on the one hand and research process on the other and how it's the process, this, this regular movement through your topic, this enthusiasm that we were talking about, this regular, I don't mean in a linear sense, just, just the constant engagement with it. And I mean, all I had to do to make sense of that in my area of writing was to just take out research and put in writing, the writing method as opposed to the writing process, <laughs> to understand that no one's going to be able to give you the outline method. No one's going to be able to give you the routine method or the genre method that will get you through your next writing pro uh, uh, um, project. What you need to develop is your own process. Right. Right. And I, I like to think of method as sort of becoming embedded in process or embedded in practice. We have this regular practice where we do all sorts of exploratory, experimental things that, you know, we hope they're going to work out, but they don't always work out. And we're okay with that. And at certain times, we then take a very methodological approach. So in reading, for example, we're well, in doing research in large, we do reading and we're reading and we find, you know, to get to the gap in the literature, we find a question that somebody has, hasn't answered or somebody has asked at the end of their, you know, suggestions for future research. Here's this question. And we say, ah, here's a question that I'm going to work on. And when we choose that moment of question, when we've gotten there and we've made a commitment to here's a specific research question, then method suddenly becomes invaluable because we can set up a method by which to research a specific question and find useful answers that can be potentially publishable uh, by following method. But then, of course, we constantly are stepping into and out of that one method-driven project into our non-method-driven practice or process where we're experimenting and exploring and we're trying to find this or that or the other uh, way of doing things that we don't know yet. Um, maybe the best outline is this. Maybe the best outline is that. Um, so process is something we do. The practice is the process and methods get embedded in it when they're useful. And they're often useful, but not always. And I mean, what that really points up is the idea that it is the process that's the research. And just as very often I have to sort of make plain to my students that it is the doing the writing that is the writing. Because the basic picture that people have in their mind, and this is something that you all seem to agree on as you describe research um, books or articles in, in, the, in, in your book, is that it's the finished product that captures attention. It's the finished product that seems to be 
you know, the, let's say the, the pivot of all that uh, a student will do on a particular uh, project, but it's really learning to be in the process that is going to be most valuable and to bring someone to the results that they, well, effective to use your word, to, to be effective in what it is that they're doing. Yeah. And I think that, right, you know, it's easy to say, well, I'm just in the process, so I'm just going to read. But writing in itself is a specific action that I think forces a commitment that you don't get without writing. And I think that commitment is important to the process so that you move through steps rather than just repeating steps or grinding on through next article, next article. One of the things I talk about in the book is what I call the literature review trap, which is where you keep saying, well, I need to read more. And if, you know, if you're just reading, you, you do need to read more. None of us are ever going to read everything that's relevant on our topic uh, just because lots of stuff gets published. But if we start writing and we start making a commitment to our own ideas, um, that shifts our practice and our process to what we feel is most important to these things we, which, which we make a commitment to for a time, even though we may learn something new. And so writing is, is this crucial phase in the, in the intellectual research process because it does also force this commitment. It's not just an engagement with the process, but it's a committed engagement and forces you to make choices where reading doesn't leaves you more open. Yeah, and the, and the wonderful thing is, is that writing itself is a process. So you're moving from one to the other. I mean, to come back to your initial image, uh, which might be a nice way of closing out uh, our interview of the gardening, as it being, you know, the, the research being a, a practice like that, um, where you go out and it's not entirely clear what you're going to do each day, but you generally are going to improve your garden. I think this is what William Germano means also in his most recent book and in other books as well, when he talks about the fact that he's very unhappy with the term creative writing only for the novelists, let's say. And he would like to see it brought over also clearly into academia. And it would it would appear very much that that is also your point, because if you talk about the practice as being this regular activity, well, whenever you engage yourself with something, you're naturally engaging yourself with yourself and you're finding things out, if not creating things. <laughs> um, I, I don't know where to draw the line there very clearly, right? I mean, uh, this wonderful book uh, by uh, Valin Klinkenborg, several short sentences about writing. There's a lot of snide humor in it at times where, for example, for example, one time he says, research is an extremely useful tool for the writer especially the novelist, <laughs> which, which throws a lot of people because everyone was thinking, ah, here comes the nonfiction writer. But I, I think we're, we're, we're seeing here a trend. We're seeing here the, the, the recognition that to be enthusiastic and regularly engage with a topic, whatever it might be, is creative. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that in the practice and process of writing, I I like to differentiate different kinds of writing. Sometimes you're writing what uh, perhaps might be what Germano is, is talking about as, as creative writing. I call it exploratory writing, which is writing notes to yourself, writing ideas that you're not going to share with anybody else and literally exploring, exploring the intellectual landscape. And then 
There's also writing for performance or writing for presentation, which is when you say, okay, I've got to turn something in. You know, how do I convince somebody else that, that I'm being reasonable? But I think that this exploratory writing is something that I, a lot of scholars lose sight of, this sense that the action of writing helps me learn. And the action of writing is this exploration and experimentation with not just sharing ideas, but also generating ideas. And many people think of writing as, well, I've done all the research, I'm finished with the, the idea stuff, and now I just have to report it. And that loses all the power of writing as a tool to help you understand things. And this exploratory writing is a tool to help you understand your yourself. As you say, engage with yourself. You write an idea down and then you look at it and you say, wow, is that right? Do I believe that? I, do I feel strongly about that? Uh, I often feel that writing is like having a class of really start, smart students and maybe I'm just flattering myself, but you know, you're teaching a class of smart students and they ask you all sorts of questions you hadn't anticipated. And when I write, I have this idea and then I look back and I'm like, oh, here's a question I haven't anticipated. So this exploratory dimension of the writing process, this, it is creative writing. It's writing for the sake of creating your own ideas and creating your own vision of, of how the world works, your own story in the terms of, you know, my book. Yeah. And, and so many other people, I mean, that's the word, word that we fall back on it. Um, it all of us, <laughs> there, there seems to be nothing better, really, but um, it means so much. Uh, but to, to, to pursue what, you, what you're saying there, because this, this is really interesting to me, this idea of, for instance, you've got to the end of your project, you feel you've read, experimented, or done in the field, whatever it is that you felt you needed to do, and you're at the point where, as you were saying, it's just a matter of writing it up. And, and and you think as if the truth is already there. And yet, just what you're saying, and, and, and the way I see it as well, and so many others, that the, the ultimate accuracy of one expression of the truth, it's not that you haven't understood something or, or, or discovered some sort of knowledge. It's really only worthwhile always as a re-expression of what has been being said. I know that I've, I've put that fairly convolutedly. So if I might, I'll just give it one more expression. <laughs> I mean, what we do is we achieve the necessary accuracy for any project through the formulation of our findings in terms comprehensible to the people who can use those findings. And this this brings us back to the community, right? Exactly. So, I mean, I mean, essentially what we're doing is we're reformulating what we think into what they think. Yeah. And that's one of the important elements of being thinking of this as a conversation with the community of scholars is that, um, you know, we haven't really talked about gaps in the literature, but the gaps in the literature are to some extent, the things that others have left unsaid. We're in this conversation and one person mentions an idea and they mention three factors of that idea. And there's a fourth factor that they didn't mention. Well, that's your gap in the literature. And you jump in and you say, well, you know, we also want to talk about this fourth factor. And so you are doing your, re I mean, 
the research comes out of, hopefully comes out of you doing writing anyway, because I think the practice of research and the practice of exploratory writing is not something you just do after the fact. It helps you set the whole thing up. But we come to this and we say, well, I got here by reading, you know, these five people and they had this set of questions and I'm making meaning from that and that my results are now related to them and are meaningful to them. And that's why my work is important. Uh, one of the things that a lot of graduate students struggle with is a sense that their project is so small and so narrow and doesn't you know, have big meaning outside the real world. But if you're in a conversation with other scholars, you're not worried about answering the whole world. You're saying to the community in which you belong to say, you, my community, have expressed interest in this idea. And I want to be part of this community and I'm enthusiastic about being part of this community and I have something to add. So we address these, these gaps in the literature and recognizing that the gaps in the literature are really the questions that your, your community have not answered or have raised and not answered is a way of moving forward and a way of recognizing that there is value in your work to the people that you care about on a very low end. And that's not selfish. That's just, you know, finding the community of which you're part. It doesn't make your work small. It just makes it important to people you care about, which is not yeah, bad. This caring. No. And this caring about is also uh, for me a very interesting way of putting it because there is that interpersonal level in good ways and in bad ways. Um, we all know about the politics of of academia, but um, academia is also impossible without that collaboration, which is really what you're talking about in the community. I, you've, uh, I will need to follow up the gap then because I brought it up and I'm leaving a gap in our interview if I don't, <laughs> don't have my say there. Um, the uh, Chicago Writing Program kind of avoids the term gap. Uh, I, I'm splitting hairs on words today, but sometimes when you split hairs on words, you, you notice bigger things. And um, it, it, it tells us something, I think, if you talk about gaps, about how you're positioning your community members across from you when you, let's say, kick off your turn at speaking, which is your next research project. Um, they prefer a term along the lines of unstable or instability because the difference is gap is you've missed something, and I mean, that's really a non-starter when you step into a group of experts, <laughs> as opposed to um, you've got something that needs some sort of fine tuning so that the other things that you've also got and which all of this depends on don't come, come tumbling down. And I, I think you're, you're sending out a different message and you're probably also more realistically describing what's going on in the research community. Right. I, yeah, I use, you know, I use the term gaps in the literature because that's so familiar and common. And everybody has heard that term, or at least when I was younger, everybody knew what, you know, kind of what that meant, but didn't really know what it meant. It was often difficult. What is a gap in the literature? But, but it's this common phrase. But I think that instabilities is a great way of looking at it. I, I might choose, you know, uncertainties because that's a word I use a lot, but um, it is these, these places, it's the questions that other people have asked. It's uh, if we think about it in terms of a conversation with people, the, what are known as gaps in the literature are really the questions that other people have. 
uh, questions that they have about their own work, questions about weaknesses in their own work, about things they haven't answered from their own work. I went this far, but I wish I'd gone farther kind of thing. All of that is uh, the limits of our research, um, the uncertainties, the instabilities, the unanswered questions. I think all of these are better terms to describe what we're looking for as scholars. But there's this history of talking about gaps in the literature, which, you know, in a more objectivist paradigm, um, it makes sense to talk about the gap of the literature. Nobody's published on this. Therefore, there's a gap. Uh, somebody made a mistake here. Therefore, there's a gap. But in this more richer paradigm where there are these incommensurable views of the world, it's more what questions, what uncertainties, what instabilities are we addressing that have come up in this conversation that we've had with other scholars? Plus, a word like story and gap um, actually illustrate precisely what we're talking about, this interpersonal level. I mean, there's nowhere else to start from in a conversation than the language already being used. So if you, you know, willingly avoid a term like gap, then you very greatly risk being misunderstood. And I think this is also one of those things that uh, students don't necessarily understand, at least to that level of complexity, that in a sense, you're you're reformulating what's been said, and your reformulation is the new thing. And that is a different view than you're getting at the truth. I mean, the truth is that continuation of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that. And, you know, I think about the one of the struggles that scholars have is that we're trying to find new ways of looking at the world, new ways of understanding the world and seeing the world. And the language that we have with which to communicate is language that come, has grown out of uh, a social practice of centuries based on old ways of looking at the world. And those old ways of looking at the world may not match up with the nuance or subtleties of our, our new view. And yet we're struggling to explain this new nuanced view with language that comes out of an old view. And this is one reason I, I often recommend that people try not to get hung up on the semantics of things, but to rather focus on what's going on in the world that they're studying. Um, and then think about that and be anchored on that. And then you can say, well, I'm choosing the word story to discuss this larger process. And here's why I'm choosing the word story, but it might be limited, right? Story implies creation, fiction, where we don't want that, but we do want to recognize narrative elements. So we want to focus on what's going on in the world. And as we have new ideas, we have to find new language to express them. And of course, that's partly why jargon arises, right? Scholars are talking about stuff that people haven't really talked about before. And so they make up a word and boom, jargon. Um, again, having yeah. a community that we're in helps us focus because if other people are using jargon, we can use that. And that saves us all sorts of effort because we're part of their community and we're not explaining our work to, you know, a 15 year old, smart 15 year old who doesn't have the language. We're talking to somebody who does have the language already. 
Well, thank you very much for that, Steve. That is Dave Harris, and his book, Literature Review and Research Design, A Guide to Effective Research Practice, is out with Routledge. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Dave. Goodbye. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I guess I wish we had more time because I'm just like having fun talking about ideas, but it's been great being on the program, Daniel. Uh, Thanks so much. And I appreciate it. Well, it's been a pleasure too on this side. Very good. Very good. And this is goodbye to all of my listeners. Bye-bye. And until next time here on Scholarly Communication.